All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Mindful Hunter Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jay Nickel. This week, we're going to do a deep dive into shelters, what I think about when I pick a shelter, the things I'm concerned about, different shelter options, different manufacturers, different types, whole bunch of shelter information, so should be a good one. As always, if you could like, comment, share, or subscribe, it would be greatly appreciated. If you want to support the podcast directly, please go to mindfulhunter.com slash shop, pick up a t-shirt or a hat, and those funds help me uh, do everything that I do here at Mindful Hunter. And for the next two weeks, we're having a Black Friday sale, 20% off everything in addition to the shipping discounts that I already offer. And you just got to use the code BLACK20. Also, I currently have an Aerolite sleeping bag giveaway that was given to me by Sitka to give away to you guys. There's two days left to enter when you're listening to this. The the giveaway enters uh, Friday, November 19th, I think at midnight. The best way to enter is to go to my Instagram, go to my profile, hit the link in the profile. That'll take you to my link tree. And then right up at the top, there's the Aerolite giveaway. And there's a bunch of different ways to enter. You can subscribe to the newsletter, like the mule hunt video, um, like a post, a whole bunch of different stuff. And the more things you do, the more entries you get. So two days left to do that. Um, hop on in and hopefully hopefully you'll win an Aerolite bag. Um, there hasn't been a ton of YouTube content other than the mule deer hunt video went up last week with Spencer getting his first buck. Super exciting, pretty crazy hunt. As usual, weather was absolutely ridiculous. Um, and it was kind of a kind of funny story how everything happened, but I don't want to, I don't want to give everything away. So if you haven't seen that, I would go check it out. Now, as usual, before we get into the meat of the podcast, we're going to do these little segments. It's been a couple of weeks since we did a solo cast, but I basically had an opportunity to have kind of two fantastic guests on in a row. I had Tannis on to talk about her goat hunting trip in British Columbia, and then I had John Barclow kind of back to back with that. And both those podcasts were so good and had so much good information that I, I, I just didn't want to interrupt the flow with a solo cast in the middle. So did those two back to back, but now we're back with a solo cast. Been a while since I've kind of done a training update. I guess the first thing I'll open with is an injury update. So my leg has been basically out of commission since we got back from the hunt. I'm pretty sure I went on the hunt with a torn MCL, uh, hiked over a hundred kilometers, uh, kind of beat the shit out of it. It is what it is. Didn't feel great during the hunt, but fucking suck it up, buttercup. And when I got back, it really kind of went south. And I think the hike out accompanied with the 10 kilometer pack out with a half a deer plus camp just kind of pushed things over the edge. And I was limping pretty bad. It's been going on two weeks now. Um, I am using some peptides, TB500 and BPC157. Um, if everybody's anybody is interested in what my protocol is with those, hit me up. Because they're research peptides, I'm not super comfortable kind of sharing dosages on a on a broadcast platform like this because you know you kind of want to know what you're doing before you start messing around with that stuff. But 
it is definitely helping. Went and had an x-ray. X-ray didn't show anything other than a shitload of fluid in the knee, but it would not show tendon or ligament damage anyways. So I'm going to start seeing a physiotherapist, going to see if I can get an actual diagnosis about exactly what's wrong. Um, I may even suck up and just pay for an MRI just because I'm curious. Um, and that would give me a good kind of estimate to recovery. But for right now, I'm just not training legs whatsoever. I, I, I figured it's best. Listen, just, just let it rest. And to be honest with you, my legs are a little overdeveloped compared to my upper body anyways. So I'm using this time to kind of focus more time on the upper body. And it's rather fortunate that my leg got injured when it did, when it did, because I've been dealing with a shoulder injury that has been very prominent since last January. I think it originally started as kind of a chronic archery thing, maybe some poor form, maybe overbowed a little bit. And then I just was never able to get rid of it, but it is 100% healed up now. So just starting last week, I put a shoulder day back into my routine. So now I have a back day, chest day, shoulders day, and an arms day. And I, I basically, I try and go two on one off, but with my schedule, sometimes it ends up being three on one off, one on one off, but basically training, trying not to train any more than five days a week, especially seeing as I'm bulking, it's more recovery is more important to training, especially when you're kind of fighting this uphill battle with caloric intake on that note, 267 pounds this morning, I think it was actually 267.4 or something. Heaviest I've ever been, 264 was my previous best last January. I feel like a bloated harpoon seal, uh, <laughs> but not, not, in a, not in a totally bad way, to be honest with you. Like I went to the gym today and it just, I felt like a freak, like just huge. Um, it was great. Training was good. I'm super strong. Like the strength of my lifts are just going up week after week. And I will tell you right now, food in my experience, is the single largest determinant of strength. And I'm even including PEDs in there. Personally, I've tried cycles with low food and low cycles with high food. And the low cycles with high food, I get way stronger than like a high cycle with low food. So obviously PEDs play a role, but I personally believe food actually plays a, a higher role. And you end up putting on a bit of fluff, but I mean, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. We shed that off later. So all is really going to plan. I don't think I'm going to hit 280. I think it would be irresponsible to push things that hard. I'm eating a shit ton of food right now. Six meals a day. An average meal for me is 400 grams of rice, 240 grams of a protein, and then uh, uh, breakfast is 100 grams of cream of rice, three whole eggs, 250 grams of egg whites, and maybe 150, 200 grams of frozen blueberries, um, and at least two or three shakes throughout the day, kind of pre and post training and some carb drinks and the rest of it. Like, And I'm eating whatever I can right now. If I get in all my meals and I can still cram in a couple donuts at the end of the day, I'm doing it. Like, I just, it, it, this is, this is bulk or die. Like I'm just going hard trying to get as big as humanly possible by Christmas before I kind of start to taper off and get ready for the show in June. So I was a little bit frustrated with my progress. I thought I was stalling out a little bit, but I think the hunt really helped kind of freshen things up, went in a bit of a deficit. 
you start to lose your insulin sensitivity after eating so many carbs for so long and you just don't respond the same way and you don't process them the same way. And I'm a big believer that going into a bit of a deficit for even four, five, six days can like reset your whole system and let you come back from scratch. So I love this. I'm in my early 40s. I'm 43. And I honestly believe I cannot train at kind of peak intensity for any more than two or three months in a row without a break. That's how I work best. Just go flat out five days a week, hard as I can, two or three months in a row, and then I take a week off. And the nice thing about my life is natural things just come up. I just, I'll end up having to go away for work or a hunting trip will come up. Like I never actually sit at home for that week. I just work my life around the fact that I know I got this trip coming up and that actually keeps me motivated too, because I know I'm not going to get to the gym for a week. So I just try to go that much harder. Anyways, that's been progressing very well. Um, Diet is a pretty easy thing to keep on point when you're just really trying to stuff in as many calories. I'm trying not to eat too shitty because that will have an effect on your lipids and and a bunch of other stuff that I do, I would like to keep in check. Like um, health is is very definitely important. Um, Yeah, so that's training. Um, Anything, uh, you know... I'm still pretty strictly adhering to a combination of like a progressive overload protocol with like some pump work. So I will typically do five exercises per body part with two working sets per body part for my two main exercises. And then my ancillary exercises, sometimes I'll just do four or five sets times eight to 12, uh, depending on, on what I feel. Chest is a very good example. Like I'll, I I never try and max out on incline chest. I I don't go anything less than like six to eight reps. Cause I just feel, you know, that's a bit of a vulnerable position and the risk of injury is too high. And my chest is when I start getting too heavy, it just starts becoming like, it hurts my rotator cuffs and my, my like interior delts start doing a lot of the work. And, uh, it just doesn't seem to stay that focused on chest. So that would be an example of, of an exercise where I keep it a little bit lighter and I go for a few more reps on purpose. Whereas those other power movements for me, like a, like a flat um, machine chest press, I, I like taking that one up as high. But to be honest, I'm maxed out so much on strength now. Basically, I do the full stack and then I put a gym pin in and I put two 45-pound plates on that and I'm still getting 15 reps. Um, and the, that, that's kind of my one, one of my heavier compound movements. Because I train alone, I'm not a big fan of, of barbell movements. They've always tripped me out. I always get worried about, you know, not being able to get the last rep up. And just having that concern in my head actually reduces the kind of efficacy of my workout itself. And that yeah, that kind of gets in my head. So I steer clear of that unless I have a partner with me. But other than that, training is the same old, same old, except for going to a four-day split, ditching legs. think maybe I'll wait another two weeks and then I will um, start slowly putting back some leg stuff in, even if it's just single leg stuff with my right leg at first. I remember actually digging up some studies where they've shown that even exercising one half of your body will have this kind of like sensitivity response on the other side or sympathetic response on the other side. So they basically did this study with the, I think it was a guy, guys who had broken legs and they 
and they worked out their non-broken leg and they compared them to a control group and there had been less atrophy in the non-broken leg of the training group. So even if I can't go super hard with my left, I think by going with, uh, at least getting back in action with my right, will at the very least reduce some of the atrophy that I'm gonna be experiencing. But I actually feel like my legs are, are still kind of nice and big and full. That's the other benefit. Just literally walking around at 267 pounds, I feel like my legs are, like when I get to the top of a flight of stairs, I kind of feel like I got a bit of a leg pump. So I think there's a bunch of like uh, indirect kind of work going on right now. Um, okay, gear section. I want to take a moment and talk about the Aerolite bag. I'm going to do a deeper review on this bag, a deeper video review. I have been so slammed with my day job the past few weeks. Uh, to be honest, Mindful Hunter has just really taken a bit of a hit. Sometimes you just got to focus on the shit that pays the bills, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. So I have a ton of shit kind of in the pipeline, literally 40 or 50 videos that I'm ready to make right now. What I need to do is just take a few days off work and just crank them out and then drip them out to you guys a couple of week over the next few weeks or couple months. But anyways, what I want to say about this bag is I'm going to be honest with you at first, I didn't like it. The first two nights I, I had a really negative response. And I think the bag is up, up, definitely a mummy bag and it's slimmer. Now they do have a long version and the version I'm giving away is the long version. So I'm 6'1 and the bag is plenty long. When I have my head in the hood, I still have like three or four inches of room at the bottom of the bag. And I find if a bag is too tight, your feet start to get cold. You need that extra room down there to kind of create a pocket of warm air. It can't be too big, but you definitely, you need a little bit of wiggle room there. You don't want it to be tight to your feet and then your feet kind of compressing the insulation in the toe box, which then, you know, reduces the R value of that insulation and basically your toes and the bottom of your feet start to get cold. So the bag was long enough, but at first glance, it's one of those things where if you just zip it up halfway, which is what I would typically do with my Kafaru slick bag and kind of leave my chest open, which is how I prefer to run a center zip bag. Basically, it wasn't big enough to give me the extra flaps to kind of pull over and still stay relatively wrapped up in the bag. And I would just end up kind of almost falling out of the bag. And it was, it was just annoying. And I tried zipping it up and sticking my hands through the armholes. Um, I thought that would be more comfortable than it was. I don't really recommend sleeping like that. Lander likes sleeping like that. Uh, so I'm not going to say it can't be done. It just wasn't my first choice. Then what happened midway through the trip, it got really cold. Uh, probably between minus five and minus 10 at night, closer to minus 10. We definitely had a, a night or two that was minus 10 or below to the point where, okay, now I actually got to get in this bag. And what I was surprised once I actually committed to the bag, like got in, zipped it all the way up because I thought I would feel claustrophobic because of it, it being a mummy bag and me being a, a fairly broad guy. And, and in fact, it was the exact opposite. Once I got in and zipped it right up, put my head in the hood and just wore it the way it was designed to be worn, it it really molded to my body. And when I rolled over, it rolled with me. And when I, when I rolled back, it rolled back with me. And all of a sudden I was like, oh shit, like I'm super into this bag because 
it was pretty lightweight. Like compared to my slick bag, it's half the weight. My slick bag is four and a half pounds. This one's just over two. I think it's 38 ounces. So it's two pounds, six ounces. And I took it all the way down to minus 10 in a pair of long johns and a t-shirt. And I was warm. Like it was so cold. My face was freezing because the hood is done up, but your nose and mouth and forehead are still sticking out. And it was like, like waking you up cold. Your face was so cold, but the rest of me was warm. Now I did wake up around three o'clock and took a piss. And at that point, because I was already up, I put a puffy on and got back in the bag. And maybe if I'd been, maybe it was tolerable at minus 10 with the t-shirt and the long johns. But once I put the puffy jacket on and got back in at minus 10, I was like, okay, now we're, now we're talking. Now this is legitimately warm. And it was the Aerolite puffy which is a, you know, a standard puffy size. Again, I didn't feel overly compressed in the bag. I felt like I could wear a puffy jacket and it worked for me. So the other thing is I'm actually kind of considering taking this bag on my goat hunt. Now it might get really, really cold up there, but I'm going to have puffy pants and two puffy jackets, a little one and a really, really big one. So if you're going to have those pieces anyways, why not work them into your sleep system? Because I feel like with a heavier puffy jacket and a pair of puffy pants in this bag, I don't see any reason why you couldn't go down to minus 25. I really don't. So, and I would be shaving two pounds, over two pounds off my kit. And that is a significant amount of weight. So I haven't completely made up my mind yet, but I'm feeling, I mean, pretty confident that I'm just going to, I'm going to run this thing for the goat hunt. But anyways, we'll see. Now, in other news, I am going whitetail hunting and I am super excited. So this is a whitetail hunt that I've had my eyes on for a few years. My company, when I was a, an engineer, a forestry engineer, used to stay at this outfitter's cabin, kind of in this a Soyuz region, like region eight. And he offers this kind of like late season hunt. It's a little more affordable. There's no big trophy bucks running around. You could call it a meat hunt. And it's just a three-day hunt. He kind of takes care of everything. And it's it's kind of semi-guided. Like there's basically blinds set up and he kind of gives you the lay of the land and lets you know where things are. And then, you know, it's not a, a, a held by the hand kind of guided hunt, if you will, which is one of the reasons it's a little bit more affordable, no giant animals and, you know, it's no white glove service, but it's kind of like, that's kind of what I'm into that, you know, if I'm going to do an outfitted hunt, this is the kind of thing that I like where it's, where you're really just taking care of some of the, uh, logistics. And I think that's, you know, where the, the hunting is still kind of on you. Um, but he has lots of cams and he, and he understands that, you know, what kind of animals are in the areas and stuff. So yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to be going the second week of December. So it's going to be pretty cold. Um, I've never done hunting like this before. I've sat in a stand maybe, I don't know, five times in my life. And four of those were in Montana when I was elk hunting. And there was a couple afternoons we got rained out. And so I would just go sit in the stand by this farmer's field and hope a whitetail walked by. So I have almost zero tree stand or ground blind hunting experience. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited. I'm going to get to try something new. And I'm going to be honest with you. I was thinking about it. And it's just, it's been a hard year, man. Like hard in a good way. Like almost every single hunt I've went and done 
excluding spring bear, has been like a legitimate ball-busting hunt. We had the goat hunt in February, the sheep hunt in August, and then the mule deer hunt late October. And those were all like pretty full-on, man, like beat the shit out of yourself type hunts. And I talked to the wife and I'm like, well, how, you know, how would you feel about me going away for a couple more days before the end of the end of the year? I said, I'll do it during the week, make it a little bit easier for you and the kid. And she's like, yeah, that's fine. Go ahead. And when I was thinking about it, it's like, I just want something. I don't have to beat the shit out of myself every time I go hunting. And I wanted something where I could just go have some fun, shut the cell phone off and, and just worry, not have to worry about all the extracurricular details. So I'm super excited. I'm getting some new gear sent up for that. So I'll make sure to do a review because I've never really worn much of the white tail line that Sitka has. So it should be really interesting to test out some of that stuff. Any of you whitetail guys got some advice for me, always please hit me up, jayatmindfulhunter.com or, or send me a DM on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. Um, I'm always looking for advice. I've already got a couple tips from, from some older dudes who know what they're doing that uh, I think is going to prove really useful. But anyways, that's what's coming up. One more quick reminder, two days left on the Aerolite bag giveaway, Instagram profile, hit the link, follow the instructions. Okay, let's dive into shelters. I wanted to take a somewhat unique approach because the question I get most often asked in regards to shelter is like, what's the one shelter I should buy? And the, the, the bad news I have for you is that there is no one shelter. Now, saying that, let me, let me clarify. There is no one shelter that is optimal for the multiple different scenarios you will find yourself in as a backcountry hunter. Now, there are some shelters that you can survive in across all situations, but you're going to be making a compromise. Either it's going to be too heavy, too light, too strong, too weak, too big, too small, too warm, too cold for every situation. But, but I will give you some recommendations by the end of this section that if you only have enough money for one, this is where I'd put my money type of deal. Or if you have enough money for two, these are the two that I would start out with, for example. So first, what I want to go through is I'm calling them filters. And these are like the areas of concern or the things that you want to take note of that are going to dictate which shelter would be optimal. After that, we're going to get into the categories of shelters. And by that, I mean the different families of, of shelters and, and how you can, and, and where each of those families is best suited and how owning one from a couple of different families is probably the best combo option moving forward. Um, I have owned and slept in tarps, teepees, with stoves, without stoves, multiple different tents from multiple different manufacturers, hammocks, and bivvies. So as far as I'm aware, I've either slept in or owned a shelter from every single family out there. And I've done extensive winter camping, summer camping, spring, fall, high country, low country, wet, dry, snow, wind. I'm not saying I've been through everything, but there's a, I have a fair, fairly extensive amount of experience in a variety of 
conditions. So I'm only saying that so you know that I'm not full of shit. And this is not just me like spouting off some kind of product knowledge from some product sheet off somebody's website or whoring out some product for some brand. Nobody's paid for any of the recommendations I'm about to give. Um, and I only give them because they're products that I've run and that I trust. So first of all, what, what's the first filter? Capacity. One person, two person, three person. And the reason why this is important is that it's going to dictate your answers to some of the following questions, because you could take a heavier tent if you had two people, but if you're going to have two people, you need more room. And if you have two people, you're probably going to need like a fairly significant vestibule because now you're going to have two backpacks, two pairs of wet boots, like lots of things that are going to need taken care of that you're not going to want outside the tent. And you're certainly not going to have enough room for inside the tent. I am a fan of individual uh, shelters, except in the case of large shelters with stoves. Then I kind of go back on that and I say, then I'm talking multiple people in one side. But if we're not going to run a stove and we're going to be going backpack hunting with multiple people, I like the idea of everyone carrying their own tent. I like the privacy, their smaller footprints, they're easier to set up. Um, there's just a lot of stuff I like about it. That's not how you have to do it. Lots of guys have success other ways. Um, but for me, I prefer individual shelters. So that's number one question. What are we going to do? What capacity do we need? And the answer to that question will then dictate how you, where you end up in the rest of these questions. Um, what season is it? Now, the season itself is not necessarily important, but it's the accompanying environmental factors that are dictated by season. Is it going to be windy? Is it going to be rainy? Is it going to be heavy snowfall? Is it going to be extremely hot? What's the ground going to be like? Like, is it a particularly dry area that might get rain? So maybe, you know, ground condensation isn't, isn't a concern, but you'll definitely need some type of, of shelter, making a bivy, you know, not an option. That is almost, you know, if not the second most important thing, like the most important thing. And, and I don't, depending on where your experience level lies, I don't want you to feel married to the kind of like seasonal recommendations of any one manufacturer. Some people build their tents stronger than they list. Some people build their tents weaker than they list. So we're going to talk about a couple things that you're going to keep in mind. So it's more like if you're going to have, a, you know, it's going to be high wind. These are the types of things your tent or shelter should have, as opposed to just buy a four season tent because you're going to be in high wind. Cause I, that's not really a, I'd prefer to give you kind of like a cognitive recommendation that will allow you to like make better decisions as opposed to just following rules. Okay. Number three, wait, are we talking like a 12 day backpack hunt here where you are loaded to the tits and you're looking to shave every single ounce possible? Or are we talking like an elk bivy hunt here where, because you only got two or three days food on your back, like your pack's really not going to weigh any more than 50 or 60 pounds. If your shelter is north or south, one or two pounds, it, it's not even really going to factor in. So that's something else that you need to 
take into account? What's your what's what's the goal or what limitations are going to be imposed on you by the weight of the shelter that you need to hit? The next one I don't hear anybody talking about. I did a bunch of research in in, in advance of this, seeing what other people looked at when looking at shelters. I was just kind of curious, do a little market research, a little benchmarking. And um, bugs. Are there bugs? Because that is really, I mean, I'll just cut to the chase. That is the determining factor for me, early season, mid-season, between a tarp and a tent. You can have a lot of bugs, just go with the tent. Um, and I'll get into that more, but that's something you want to pay attention, pay attention to. Um, wind, we already talked about. Ground. How difficult is pegging going to be? Because there are certain tents that offer kind of increased efficiency. For example, a tunnel tent is the most space-efficient shape for a tent. And what I mean by that is that you get more cubic feet of volume inside the tent per tent area. So per weight, because a tent area would be the kind of like circumference of the tent itself. So that, and it, that would, then why that matters is that means weight. The more area of fabric that you have on your tent, the more poles, the more pegs, the more it's going to weigh. And a tunnel tent for weight is the biggest internal volume you can make just because of the geometry of, of, of how that's made. But a tunnel tent requires you to peg it down. It's not optional. Tunnel tents don't work. And when I talk tunnel tents, I'm talking like the Nalo um, from uh, uh, Hilleberg or the Onion. These They'll have big hoops and then they'll be pegged out at either end. And it's the tension between the two ends that holds the hoops stiff. Um, and the Acto is another example. And without that tension from either end, the tents just collapse. So is it going to be, is the ground going to be easy to peg into? Because if it is, maybe running a shelter that requires more pegs is not such a big deal because it's not going to be that terrible, diff terribly difficult to peg these all in. Now, I will also cut to the chase on this matter. I'm not inherently a fan of tunnel tents personally. I don't, I, they have their place and some people love them. So I'm going to leave that as a personal choice up to you, but they're not my first choice in, in any of the situations precisely because of that. I don't like having to, to rely on pegs alone to keep my tent up. I kind of look at it as a, a point of weakness of the tent. If it, if they came out in the middle of the night, my tent's going to collapse on me and I don't like that. So I tend to prefer freestanding tents. But again, I'm more than willing to admit that is purely personal opinion. There's no like data that says a freestanding tent is objectively better than a non-freestanding tent. It's just my own personal preference. Comfort. How important is it to you to have extra size? I'm going to give you a prime example of this. I still take my daughter truck camping. We don't do like big backcountry shit yet. She's only, she'll be turning six in two weeks. And I think this coming summer, we'll probably do our first overnight, kind of slightly more remote, like hike in type thing. But up until now, it's been all truck camping. So when we were evaluating shelters, when I was evaluating shelters for me and my daughter, the single most important factor was comfort. Because I want her to enjoy herself. 
That is more important than anything else when we go camping. Everything else comes secondary to that. The food that I pick is stuff she likes. I let her bring her iPad so she can play games or watch some cartoons in, in the morning. I don't pressure her to do anything. I need her to relate positive memories to the outdoors and to time in tents. Once that's embedded, then we can start to push things a little bit deeper because then she's going to be feel comfortable. She's going to feel empowered. She's going to feel engaged and she's going to want to kind of push herself. But until we get to that point, it's just about keeping shit fun and comfortable and easy. So comfort was number one priority. So if you were going to take your significant other with you, that might be a situation where like, yeah, the tent's going to be a bit heavy and it's going to be a bit more, a little overkill for the situation. But I know my wife and I know she's going to want some room and I know she's going to want to maybe sleep in a bit in the morning. So there are definitely situations when you're looking at the backcountry where comfort is, is important. And I'm, I'm trying to come up with creative ways to increase comfort with marginal increases in weight. For example, this year on my goat hunt, I'm going to be taking a seven foot by nine foot Dyneema tarp. Now this only weighs five ounces, but I'm essentially going to be using it to add a vestibule onto my solo. It was very frustrating last year that I didn't have any area really other than the little vestibule to put things like my backpack and boots and like other things that like you get to camp and you just want to dump some shit, but you don't want to have to worry about it being covered in snow. And even when you're cooking in the late afternoons or the early evenings, sometimes it's not that cold. It's nice to just have the doors open to the tent, have the breeze blowing through, maybe even like dry stuff out a little bit, and then just kind of be cooking in that kind of covered area. So that's an example of how I wanted to increase comfort, but I wanted to take a unique approach to doing it. Now that leads into our next filter, condensation. How much condensation are you going to get here? And I'm going to say something somewhat counterintuitive. Condensation is not necessarily primarily influenced by humidity. I think personally, it's more influenced by the state that you get in your tent in which obviously can be indirectly influenced by humidity because if humidity is so high that it's raining and you get rained on and you get in your tent, you're going to be, you're going to create a lot of condensation. But I want, I want to unpack that a little bit because there are situations like if you're truck camping or let's say you have a base camp where like one, there, you know, one set of guys has a wall tent and there's two or three other guys in smaller tents and you have the ability to, to dry out your system, like your clothing system before you get in your tent. I don't think you're going to have that big of an issue with condensation. Where condensation really becomes an issue for me is when I'm using my sleeping system to dry myself out. So this happened several times in the sheep hunt this year. It happened to me in my goat hunt last year. It happened to me and elk the year before that. Like I use my sleeping bag and my clothes to dry me out at night. I climb in my sleeping bag wet. I talked about this with Barclow last week. He concurs in, in, without some type of external drying capabilities. Um, it's really the only thing you have at your disposal. But if you're going to be in a situation where you're going to be counting on your sleeping bag and your shelter to dry you out overnight, you need to assume that you are going to be introducing a ton of condensation into your shelter. And when you do that, we need to have a con conversation about how you're going to manage that condensation. But if, it's, if, if you don't think you're going to be getting in particularly wet, either because you're going to be going into a more arid climate 
or you're going to have a secondary means of drying off. Personally, I don't think condensation is that big of an issue. Um, I have found that it's really primarily influenced by how you actually get into that tent. Final filter, bushcraft. All right. What is your level of experience in things like adverse weather setups, campsite selection, not tying? Because here's the deal. The more experienced you get and the more times you go out and get the shit kicked out of you by the mountains, don't fall apart and make it back to the truck, you will be able to get away with less and less and you will be able to push boundaries further and further because you're doing it with experience and knowledge and wisdom. If it's your first couple times, you got to play it safe, you know, over shelter, over bag, over clothe because you're not going to die from having too much shelter or too thick of a sleeping bag. You might get more tired on the hike in because your backpack's a little bit heavier, but in the big scheme of things, who gives a shit? So as your level of bushcraft increases, the number of options you have at your disposal for a variety of circumstances increase as well. Okay, so those are the types of things that I'm, I'm asking myself about when I go to pick a shelter. I'm going to run through them again real pick, quick. Capacity, season, weight, bugs, wind, ground, comfort, condensation, and bushcraft. And I'm going to add one that probably falls underground, but that would also be availability of flat terrain. Because a lot of places where I hunt, finding something flat is actually one of the, the more difficult things that you're facing. So in that situation, taking a smaller shelter that has a smaller footprint is actually more important than some of the other considerations. Like I don't really care how comfortable you want to be. If you can't find a flat place to set up your tent, it doesn't matter that you hiked in this, you know, beautiful, huge tent. You're not actually going to be able to set it up anywhere. So let, let's consider like topography, micro topography to be another one of these, another one of these filters. Okay. Let's dive into the categories of the families of, of shelters. We're going to go tarps and teepees as one because I'm going to put them in my floorless shelter category. Um, tents, second category. I am going to include stoves as almost a category because we have stoveless tarps and teepees and we have stoved tarps and teepees. And these are useful in different scenarios. And the last two families are hammocks and bivvies. And I've, I've slept in both of these in pretty adverse conditions. So I can comment on these. So let's, let's start at the top and talk about what types of scenarios these individual styles of shelters are, are useful for. Let's start with a tarp. The tarp I have the most experience with is the Kafaru mega tarp. Now I've slept with it with a stove and without a stove. So let's talk without a stove first. For a four-year period, I used this shelter on every single backpack hunt that I went on. Literally like late season, early season, high country, low country. To be honest with you, it was the only shelter I owned. So I just used it on everything. Here's the benefit, the primary benefits of a, a tarp like this. It's 
highly versatile. The thing weighed less than two pounds and it's gigantic inside for what you would, like you, there, there's not even a tent that weighs two pounds that you could compare it to. But I could compare it to like a four pound NIAC from Hilleberg and it's significantly larger on the inside and half the weight. Um, it's fairly easy to set up. It's complicated to set up at first, but once you've done it a couple times, I can, I can pop that thing up in like five, six minutes, no problem. Um, it's surprisingly capable in high wind conditions. I've sat out many a windstorm in that thing and had no problem. Now, one of the limitations of tarps is that they're single walled. So in high condensation environments, you, you want a double walled shelter because you're going to have the ability to kind of separate the kind of influence of condensation. And the other thing is they're, they're much more waterproof, like a single walled shelter. When you get rained on, if you bump up against the wall, you're going to get soaking wet. Even if the material is waterproof, there's just no two ways about it. In a double walled shelter, like a Hilleberg, it could be monsooning outside. And as long as there's no condensation inside your tent, that interior wall is going to stay bone dry. Now I will contradict one thing that I said earlier when how you get into a tent is the, you know, primary influence of condensation within the tent. That holds true for tents. Tarps are different because tarps are floorless then it's like the ground conditions. If you have a wet ground and you set up a tarp, you will wake up in the morning to extensive condensation because the condensation is just going to evaporate uh, off the ground throughout the night and it's going to hit the interior wall of the tarp and it's just going to gather there and you're going to wake up to a soaking wet interior. It's just part of the deal. So not super great for condensation, extremely versatile, extremely light, not super great for um, uh, bugs and not freestanding. And you'll notice that I said I, I wasn't a fan of non-freestanding shelters. Now, here's the difference with tarps. You are getting such a weight savings that to me, it's no longer an apples to apples, oranges to oranges. Like when I'm comparing a Niak and an Anyang from Hilleberg, they're basically the same weight. They have basically the same interior volume with a difference of like a 0.2 cubic meters and maybe three or four ounces. So at that point, literally the only difference between these tents functionally is one is freestanding and one is not. Now, when I compare a Kafaru Megatarp against a NIAC, it's like, yeah, well, one's two pounds, one is four and a half pounds. Like these are completely different animals. So at that point, you're willing to, to take the kind of vulnerabilities of the freestand of the non-freestanding structure because of the benefit in weight reduction that it gives you. So that would be that would be an exception. Um, I you know, I'm gonna say like it's not a bad first shelter. I will say that I'm glad I bought the Kafaru Megatarp first because it kind of forced me to learn some things. Like it forced me to learn good campsite selection. I mean, there's things I already knew from a kid, but when things got hairy, I really had to know how to set that thing up and peg it down properly because I couldn't rely. Like, here's the thing, man, I own a solo and like you could be a moron and set that thing up in a windstorm. You're going to be fine. You can't do that with a tarp. If you set the tarp up incorrectly, you're going to get the shit kicked out of you and it's going to fall down. Um, and it, it, it really taught me 
kind of like agility. Like I had to learn how to use it in different circumstances because it was the only thing that I had. Um, and, and for those reasons, I think a tarp is a good, a good first shelter. And I think a, a slightly oversized tarp, like don't go something crazy. Like I even think the super tarp from Kafaro is a bit small for my liking. Like tarps are so light already. Why not get one that has a little bit more room? And you don't even need the entire footprint inside to be flat. You just need the area where you're sleeping to be flat. Um, the other thing about a tarp is you're going to want to get some type of ground sheet for below your inflatable pad. I've used Tyvek house wrap a lot. Now I use a ground sheet from Z-Packs that's made out of Dyneema that like I weighs like half an ounce. It's crazy. And it's super durable. Um, I like it a lot. And it's not, it's still crinkly, but like Tyvex is noisy as shit. Um, so there's, there's tarps. There's, there's a lot of pros. There's a lot of cons. I think it's an excellent tool to have in your arsenal. Let's talk TPs for a second. Essentially just a tarp on steroids. Most situations are going to be multiple individuals. I've been kind of surprised at how durable teepees are and how well they stand up in wind. To me, when I first looked at them, I kind of thought to myself, this doesn't seem like something that's really going to stand up in harsh conditions, but I've been in a few now during like really full on conditions. And yeah, I, which shouldn't surprise me because, you know, it was a structure popularized by individuals, natives who, you know, withstood everything that nature had to offer and the TP held firm. The difference being the pri primarily hunting TPs are a single pole structure that goes up the middle and then you pull it out the outside. Native TPs tend to have exterior poles that are crossing in the middle from a kind of structural engineering purposes, you know, perspective. Those are vastly different um, architectures. But anyways, the same thing that holds true for tarps holds through for TPs. The difference being you can buy liners and bug nets for TPs. I think maybe you can for some of the smaller tarps, but it doesn't really make sense because by the time you drape material off, you're going to be losing so much of your interior volume that it no longer becomes a beneficial structure or beneficial shelter. Um, so having a liner is going to give you uh, more robust condensation capabilities. And then having a bug liner like that bug mesh liner is going to allow you to have the weight benefit of the um, floorless shelter without having the um, vulnerabilities to bugs like a typical shelter. Um, however, by the time you add a, a liner and a bug net, to be honest with you, now you're back to pretty close to what like a really serious floored shelter weighs. So now you got to ask yourself like, is there really a benefit to this. So I tend to, to don't say, how can I make this shelter work for what I'm going to do? But what would be the naturally the best shelter to use for this particular set of conditions? The caveat there being, if you only have one shelter uh, and there's stuff that you can buy, that's going to make that one shelter be livable through a variety of conditions for less money than what a second or third shelter would cost that you would still need to buy in order to increase your, your diversity or your kind of the options available to you, then I say, go for it. And this leaves into stoves quite nicely. That's why I bought the stove 
for the Gafaru Mega Tarp. I've used it several times now. I've been on, you know, I can remember one late season hunt in Wyoming in particular. We had, you know, a foot of snow on the ground and I had the 18 inch Smith cylinder stove inside that Kafaru mega tarp. And it was great, like toasty breakfast every day, could climb in there and get warm at night while I was eating my dinner. Like it really increased the versatility of the shelter itself. Um, and I didn't need a, a, a kind of winter or four season tent in order to provide the kind of similar warmth capabilities and, and whatnot. So, um, yeah, you're really going to increase versatility by by adding a, a stove. And I will say tarps are great for single or pairs. By the time you're getting into teepees, you're looking at much larger groups of people. So there's kind of tarps and teepees and what they're good for and 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 what they're not. Now, the two sh- tarps teepees that I'm particularly interested in for my for my solo stuff in the when there's you know, like elk bivy hunting and, and things like that. Kafaru Mega Tarp is perfect for me. I haven't really seen anything else in the market that I would like more. The other shelter that I would like to add to my kind of um, repertoire is the Sawtooth. So a buddy, Kevin, who hit me up um, after one of the last podcasts, lent us his Sawtooth and stove to take on our mule deer hunt. And I was incredibly impressed with the Sawtooth. In fact, I'm going to buy one specifically for me and my daughter to use because that's where we're going to get the comfort that she needs with the weight that I need. Um, I think she's going to love it in there, especially when we got the stove cracking. Um, so for my own personal list, I currently own the mega tarp. I'm going to be adding a sawtooth. I already have my Smith cylinder stove from my mega tarp. So the only thing that I need to add is a longer stove pipe, which I can order directly off Kafaru. And then I can use my stove in either situation. Um, okay. Tents. Now tents is where it almost gets, there's so many different kinds of tents and so many different manufacturers and so many kind of levels of, of cost and whatnot. I find it really hard to do any kind of like comprehensive breakdown. So let's keep this pretty high level. If you're going to be hunting in relatively adverse conditions, I recommend buying a really good tent. I can think of, you know, five or six manufacturers off the top of my head that I would be willing to, to buy a tent from, um, companies like Hilleberg, I think the ones Stone Glacier makes are are really nice. There's a couple other manufacturers that I would trust, but like you get what you pay for. So listen, if you're doing like just chill stuff and you're you know you're not worried, you're not in the deep mountains or like really intense circumstances, then maybe you could get away with something cheaper, but I would recommend you know, buy once, cry once. Get a good tent. Now, the question Really after that is like, do I get a three season tent or a four season tent? And I will tell you the primary difference is going to be snow load. Secondarily, it's going to be heat retention. So a four season tent is going to be made out of thicker materials. It's going to have stronger poles and it's going to be built in such a way to withstand a a much higher snow load than a three season tent. So if you're not going to be in like minus 15 or 20 Celsius and you're not going to be 
under, you know, 12 to 18 inches snow per night, there's likely not a need for a four season tent in your repertoire. I, I like this goat hunt that I'll be going on again this year. So I need a four season tent. I chose the solo. Now, this is an interesting conversation to have because you're sacrificing a ton of the things that we've already talked about. Like it's small. It doesn't handle condensation very well because the ventilation is kind of garbage. Um, it's not particularly light. It weighs five pounds, which is quite a bit for one guy. But here's the deal. It's fucking bomb proof. Literally. You can you could have two feet of snow dump on you in one night and you could just like give the thing a kick with your foot in the morning and you're good to go. Now you'd probably be loaded with condensation and a bunch of other stuff. You don't have a ton of room. You're kind of brushing up against the walls, but you're going to survive. And when you're going into deep country like that, it kind of supersedes all those other risks. Now, if you're not going to be going that hardcore, then I think a three season tent is perfectly acceptable. And I think you want a little bit more room. Don't go for the lightest thing ever. I recommend for one dude, look at two person tents. I wouldn't buy a one person tent if it's going to be your only shelter, because just by increasing three quarters of a pound to a pound, like there's the Enon from Hilleberg, which is a one person version or a three season version of the Acto. And it's tiny, man. Like you're going to lose your mind in that thing. If it rains and you're stuck in that for two or three days, like I don't recommend it. Get something like the NIAC, or if you want a tunnel tank, get something like the Onion, because having that extra room is going to give you greater peace of mind. It's going to increase your emotional state and you're going to stay more dedicated for longer out there hunting. So the extra three quarters of a pound to a pound is worth it. Now, again, like I think that stone glacier option is probably another really good option. I've heard great stuff. I know it's got 10 milled poles. Like it's, it's built, you know, very well. I've heard some drawbacks that the way you set it up and some elements of the construction are a little bit confusing. I, I've never personally run it, so I'm not going to give my personal recommendation, but it was a tent I was interested in when I bought my Hilleberg NIAC. That to me, is my favorite one-person tent. Now, it's actually a two-person tent, but for one-person use, the NIAC is my favorite. It's super fast to set up. It's one of the roomier ones inside. It's freestanding. It has a fairly small footprint. I love it. Um, but I think there's other options out there. I don't think that's the one that you, you have to go with. It's going to be a little bit better at handling condensation than the Solo is. It's going to be much better at handling certain types of condensation than tarps. Here's the thing. When you get a stiff breeze with a tarp and, it, and it's coming up and under the edge of the tarp, you can blow out a lot of condensation with, with the tarp, whereas a tent doesn't really air out in that regard. But as long as you're not climbing in soaking wet, I think the NIAC is going to offer great protection against condensation. Um, so it's going to have good capacity. It's going to let you hunt in all kinds of different conditions. The weight is quite favorable, excellent wind protection. So see, see, these are the types of things. So again, this is another shelter that if you told me I only have enough money for one shelter, I would tell you to buy something like the NIAC if you want freestanding and the Onion if you don't, because it's going to be your workout horse. Now, can I take it goat hunting? No. Is it your best option for bivy hunting elk in arid conditions? 
No. But is it going to, could it work under all those conditions? Yeah, absolutely. It could. Um, so that, that that's, that's again, why I'm getting to the fact that, that, you know, owning, it's, think about the one that's going to get you through what you do most often, buy that one first. And then as you get to the more extreme circumstances at the end of the spectrum of your experience, then you can start adding more tools into your toolkit. Now let's quickly talk about hammocks and bivvies before we get to some IG questions. Hammocks are super cool, man. I'm going to be honest with you. I've, I've slept in them a couple times. Backpacking hammocks actually have this additional toe box out to one side. So you kind of sleep on an angle in the hammock and it's surprisingly comfortable. You're not bent in half like a traditional hammock, you know, down in Mexico or whatever, like the tropics. Um, and you don't need flat ground. However, pretty complicated and lots of shit to buy. If you want like a robust system, you need an underquilt, you need an overquilt, you need a cover tarp, you need all the ropes, you need pretty extensive knot experience. Like they're a much more advanced system and you don't get any of the benefits of a covered shelter. Like when you, if the rain starts coming in sideways, you're kind of fucked. If you want to get up and make coffee in, in your shelter, it ain't going to happen. Like there's they are good for extreme ultralight situations in favorable conditions, but I personally don't see the need to add a hammock to your hunting repertoire. Um, up to you though. I don't know anyone personally who runs hammocks on a regular basis for hunting. I do have a buddy who's like an ultralight guy who does these big surf trips and the hammock is his thing. And we did go on a hunting trip together once. That same one in Wyoming, that late season one where I used the Kafaru mega tarp with the stove, he brought a hammock for that one. Um, and it's pretty, it's, it's badass. And I've slept in them in the winter, like dead ass cold. Um, and with the under quilt and over quilt, that's what actually sold me on quilts for, for camping as opposed to sleeping bags. Um, but anyways, super cool, but I would put it in the, like the nice to have, not the need to have category. Finally, bivvies. And this is where probably what I'm going to say is going to contradict other people. I hate bivvies. I hate them. The only time I would run a bivvy now is if I had an additional large tarp. And no matter how many times I run the numbers, by the time I add up the weight of the large tarp that's going to go over top and provide some shelter with the bivvy, I come back to the point where like, well, why wouldn't I just bring a tent? Like, I don't understand what this is giving me that a, a, another shelter wouldn't give me. And here's the reason I hate bivvies. On my New Mexico elk hunt, it was supposed to be great conditions. Nothing was supposed to go wrong. I took the, uh, I think it was the Outdoor Research Interstellar or something, like a brand new bivvy just came on the market. Super cool. And it monsooned one night. And it's like sleeping in a rubber coffin, man. I didn't have a tarp. So I literally had to close the bivvy up the rubber was literally laying on my face. I could feel the rain pounding into the rubber. I stayed dry, but it was an exercise in mental discipline. I was panicking all night because it was so tight in there. I couldn't open it or the water would just start splashing directly on my face. It was probably the worst night's sleep I've ever had in my life. And I woke up and I was already headed back to the truck that day. Um, 
so I, I knew I wasn't going to, I was going to grab my mega tarp and I said to myself, I'm selling this piece of shit as soon as I get home and I'm never going to find myself in this situation again. So here's one of those things like a bivy looks perfect on paper. Like, why wouldn't you take a bivy? It's light, it's mobile, it requires a small footprint. You can survive through multiple conditions. But once you spent a night or two in really unfavorable conditions in a bivy, it, it, all that shit goes out the window because it's just such an, an uncomfortable experience that you never want to experience anything like that again. Now, like I said before, the caveat to that would be one large tarp with one or more bivvies underneath. But then I just don't know why you wouldn't just take a bigger tarp or a teepee or a tent because the, the, the weight is just not worth it. Um, so that's my thought on that. Okay, so let's wrap up everything real quickly again and provide some and go back over some, some, some recommendations. So the types of things that you want to be looking at when considering what shelter you need to take on whatever trip you're going on is like, how big does it need to be? What season am I going in? What weight limit do I need to hit? Are there bugs? How windy is it? How tough is the ground? And how angular or uh, steep? is the ground and how difficult will it be to find a flat spot? How much comfort do I want? How much interior volume do I need? How big of an issue is condensation going to be? And what's my level of bushcraft? How comfortable am I pushing whatever shelter I bring to its limits? Then I'm going to choose from the family of tarps and teepees with and without stoves, tents, hammocks, and bivvies. And then within each of those, I'm going to go through and pick the best one of those going through all the things that we just talked about, you know, matching the seasonality with the, the capabilities of the tent, et cetera. And then I'm going to do it. And I will say just on my own personal experience, if you are only going to start with one shelter, I would say start with something like a Hilleberg Neak or a Nalo sorry, an onion. The Nalo is the four season version of the onion. So the Niak or the onion, I think is the best for a one person starter shelter. It's going to get you through the most, the biggest variety of, of situations. And if you wanted to add to that, the second thing I would look at is a tarp with a stove. If you tend to do stuff by yourself, I would go like a mech. They don't even make a mega tarp anymore, but there's some other options that do kind of fit that bill from some other manufacturers. I'm not super comfortable with those product names, so I'm not going to share them right now just because I don't know what offerings they have. And if you wanted something where you could go with two people, I would look at the sawtooth or something like a six-person TP, which is never really going to hold six people, and a stove, like a Smith cylinder stove or a Smith box stove. Th those would be my recommendations. Then once you find out what type of hunting you're going to be doing, the, like the most extreme type of hunting you're going to be doing, like, are you going super crazy high country for mule deer in the desert? Okay. Then we can have a conversation about like, okay, what's that ideal tent and add that on as your second or third option. Are you going to be doing solo goat hunts in the middle of February in one of the highest snowfall regions in the country? Okay. If that's the case, Let's talk about what you would add in that situation. My personal choice is the solo, but get that middle of the road shelter first and then branch out from there.
All right. I hope that was uh, beneficial. And if and if I can add any more, you know, clarity, please please feel free to to hit me up, and I'm, I'm I'd be more than happy to to help out. Now we're gonna run some. Um, run some questions from IG. So Matt Brown says, be cool to see some different tarp setups. Also managing condensation in a Hilleberg Nalo. Um, we've already talked about a couple different tarp setups. And here's the thing about the Nalo has a couple of openings and a couple of foot openings. I would open all of them up as much as you can. And then I would have the zippers so that you can open up the tops of all your doors so that you're getting as much breeze coming through there as possible while still keeping out any nighttime moisture. And I would keep as much wet stuff out of the tent as possible. Now, if you're using your sleep system to dry yourself and your gear out, you're going to have no choice. But if you have some other way to dry out gear, then keep everything wet outside of the tent. Uh, Clunes Adventures says, what do you do with your pack at night in areas you cannot hang it in trees? I've never hung my pack in the trees. I will hang my food in trees if I'm very deep in bear country. Um, I tend to bring a pack cover and then um, I just wrap, wrap it around my pack and I leave it laying on the ground. And if it rains, it just rains on the pack cover and maybe the straps get wet. Maybe they don't. I don't really concern myself with it. Um, the caveat to that is I have started bringing a, uh, a Dyneema tarp on some of my latest tents and I will use that as I will double up as my pack cover. So there's no point of bringing both and I'll just wrap that tarp over my bag. And that is precisely the situation that I was starting to talk about with the um, tarp solo combination that I'm going to do for goat. What I will be doing is leaving my, my pack underneath that tarp every night. Uh, Mr. Rainier says, is the Hilleberg NIAC worth paying the duties for shipping it into Canada? Absolutely. And I will say this, I have shipped in Hillebergs from three different places, uh, Moose Jaw Camping, Kafaru, and shit, Black Ovis. Kafaru and Black Ovis were both reasonable with duties. And again, sometimes this isn't the fault of the shipper. It depends who they ship it with and how it gets stopped at the border. But it cost me about a hundred bucks each time. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. Moose Jaw cost me $300 after paying a hundred dollars in shipping fees. That was a kick in the nuts. I would not have done that on purpose. So I recommend, I'd say yes to the Hilleberg. Don't order it from Moose Jaw. Um, Another condensation question. The other tip I'll give that you guys are sick of hearing, bring a blue kitchen sponge, any type of sponge. Keep it in your tent at night. And when you wake up, wipe down the walls inside the tent and squeeze it outside of your tent and it will definitely keep it down. Um, Jason Carrier says, best two-person tent with stove, uh, Kafaru Sawtooth with a Smith cylinder stove for ultra lightweight, Smith box stove, if you don't mind carrying a little bit more weight. How tube, uh, Jay Friesen says, how tube type shelters hold up when dirt, snow anchors aren't available. Yeah, yeah, man, you can still tie it down to rocks and stuff, but this is my thing. Not that good. Uh, that's why I don't really use them. They're not my preference because of that vulnerability. But again, that is a personal preference. Uh, Matt Cholak says, single wall versus double wall for alpine hunting. I would say it depends on the seasonality. If you're going to be up there in the summer, in the drier climates, um, 
and then slightly less wind, less chance of storms, I would go single wall. I've done a lot of high country stuff in my Kafaru mega tarp and I loved it. Um, once it gets past, let's say the end of September, I'm going to be switching to a double wall system and I'm going to be taking my Hillebrick NIAC because it's going to be sturdier. Um, it's going to, it's going to protect the, the, from rain a lot more because it's double walled. I think both tents are good. The both systems are going to condensate somewhat equally for different reasons, but that wouldn't be part of my decision-making process. So either the, a tarp type system for the, up until the end of September, then I'm switching over to a NIAC. What's next? How to pitch a tarp with a trekking pole easily. Okay, all of these are somewhat different, but there's a general principle you need to recommend, you need to know. They're all gonna have some way of identifying where the first couple pegs go. Like there's these little orange loops on Kafaru tarps and you use them to measure out the distance between two peg spots. And then you just peg that into the ground and then you lift the trekking pole up in between to a set height and it automatically becomes tight. And then you go to the back and you pull a third peg loop kind of along the ridge line or along the length of the tarp and then boom, you kind of have your tarp shape and then you just go and fortify it with another trekking pole and a bunch of pegs. The thing that matters is you're gonna to have to put a couple pegs in the ground first, then lift up the pole to create tension that will hold the pole up. Uh, AK Raylene asks, have you experimented with a Hilleberg tent without the inner tent liner using the footprint only? I have not, but it's super interesting to me. Um, there's complications like the footprints are kind of expensive. By the time you ditch the one, but add the footprint, your weight savings really aren't that much and you don't have the, the, the bug proof capabilities. So it's like, there is a little bit of give and take there, but I would like to try it out because there's some tents that get a lot lighter without the inner shell. Um, Superman sky says, do you fit in the Hilleberg? I do, but not all of them. So here's something that's interesting. And people have gotten into arguments with me on YouTube. And what pisses me off is the reason I make the YouTube videos the way I make is that I set the tents up and I get into them. And I show you what it looks like and what it feels like. Because even with Hilleberg, who I love, if you go on their site, some of their numbers can be misleading. Like it will tell you one tent is bigger than another tent and you set them up side by side. And it's like the way the material drapes, it's like, I'm sorry, this is not how these tents work in real life. Like there's supposed to be more headroom in an acto than a solo. Bullshit. I bought them both. I set them up side by side. There is significantly more room. Now it's only two or three inches, but when that's the difference between your head hitting in the roof and your head not hitting in the roof, that feels significant. There is significantly more room in the solo than the acto. And that is not what the technical information on the website says. But for example, the acto is actually the tent that they recommend for extremely tall people because it's the longest tent. And the way the, the sidewalls of the acto go straight up and kind of out at an angle, they actually end up giving you more headroom when you're laying down. But for a guy like me who likes to make coffee in the tent and cook in the tent and do all that kind of stuff, I would rather it be a little shorter when laying down and a little taller when standing up. So the simple answer is yes, I do fit in those tents, but I had to be very intentional about which tents that I bought. I can say as a six foot one, 267 pound guy, the Solo and the Niac fit quite well. 
Best way to seal out bottom of door drafts on teepees. In the winter, this is easy. And you just shove, I've done this tons. You shovel a bunch of snow all the way around the edges and it helps a shitload. You can also do this with dirt, depending on where you are. Like if it's super rocky terrain, that's not gonna work. At that point, I recommend really getting intentional with your peg usage because you can like pull them a little tauter, stick them in a little deeper, and then that will really keep those, those, those edges down. Also, if you have one like predominantly windy side, go get some logs and branches, build up a little brush barrier, just six to eight inches high along that one side. And then I'll break that wind, shoot it up to the wall and it won't come underneath. Cause I know what you're talking about here and it can be very, and I'm sorry, your name was Herfy Wurfy 10. It, the way that comes in under the seams, like it, it's like it crawls right in the sleeping bag with you, man. And it just, it robs you of all heat in there. So it's a, it's a, it's a really big deal. Um, okay. That's it for the questions on Instagram. Thank you so much for your patience. Thank you so much for always following along with all this shit. I hope you guys found it useful. As always, like, comment, share, subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Two days left for the Arrow Light Bag giveaway. Any more questions or comments, jay at mindfulhunter.com, DM me on Instagram, mindful underscore hunter. And as always, thanks for tuning in.